Well, that's our subject this morning, as you can see. We have these memory verses that we've been doing now. I guess we're on our, we've memorized seven verses. We're at the end of July. And this month, the verse is the glory of God. And uh, I preach on the memory verse at some point during each month, and we're right down to the end now, so this will be my last opportunity to speak on the verse of the month. In your Bible, if you need it, but you should not need it very much right now, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, the glory of God. We say it. Okay, say it with me one more time, if you will. Everybody together. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now you've memorized it. Have you thought about it? Do all to the glory of God. Even in the smallest events of life, eating and drinking, the ordinary routine of life, we're still to be conscious of the glory of God. Well, I'll tell you about this term, the glory of God. I believe it is a term that's widely used. You could probably not go to a Christian church service and not hear somebody reference the glory of God. Widely used. But I'd also quickly say not well understood. That a lot of people, if you ask them to tell you, well, what is it? What are we talking about when we talk about the glory of God? I'm afraid a lot of people would sort of drop their head and not be able to uh, elucidate on the subject, if you will. And it's rarely defined. In fact, I've heard very few messages exclusively on it. I took out all my Bibles, and usually when I begin to study for a message, I'll take, I have, I don't know, 12, 15 reference Bibles, about every one that's out. I looked in my Ryrie Study Bible. I looked in my Criswell Study Bible. I looked in the Defender's Study Bible. I looked in uh, the Schofield Reference Bible. I, went, I, I can tell you five or six more, and I just don't have time to do it. But you get the idea. I looked in the John MacArthur Study Bible. I looked in the Annotated Reference Bible. And I went on and on and on. Do you know what? Not one of them, not one, had a note on 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So I said, big boy, if you're going to preach on this, you're going to have to do it on your own because you're not going to get a... You know what I've observed is the commentators have a problem with the same verses I do. And oftentimes they don't address them a great deal. So it's not a widely preached upon subject, and yet it is so important. Look at the last phrase of it again in your Bible. Do all... I think that means everything, all the time, do all to the glory of God. And, it's, and yet it's a difficult concept, so I hope you'll listen well and get your mind wrapped around it. Obviously, I can't fully tell you all that is involved in the subject of the glory of God because it's enshrouded in mystery, because God is a mystery. If I could tell you everything about God then he would not be superior as he is. So we only pick around the edges, if you will, when we begin to talk about the glory of God, and yet it is such an important, important subject. You've probably all heard a phrase from what is now called the Westminster Catechism. It was a meeting held in England in 1650 where they tried to 
say in a very condensed form the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And in there, they dealt with the purpose of life, the purpose of my life and the purpose of your life. And there they, 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 they identified the purpose of life with the glory of God. Man's chief end or his purpose or his mission or his reason to live. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You've heard that. And not only just individual man, but the history, the ultimate overriding purpose of God in all of history. Let me say it again. Listen to me. The ultimate and the overriding primary purpose of God in all of history is his glory. Now, that's not because he's self-centered and selfish. It's because that when the, when the glory of God is put into perspective, everything else adjusts, if you will, on this earth. And everything else will be good if seen within the glory of God the ultimate overriding purpose in all of history. The purpose of God for the United States of America is his glory. In fact, he says in the book of Isaiah, he refers to the nation of Israel as Israel, my glory. And I'll talk to you about that later as we deal with the subject. You see, the reason the glory of God is so important this morning, ladies and gentlemen, God was not created for you. You were created for God. The ultimate end of our existence is not about us. Well, I can preach a long time today. I'm stirring up some. I'll tell you, I got the power. You set up and listen. Okay? You set up and listen. Because I'm on to something here this morning. The purpose of God was not created for man. Man was created for God. The purpose of salvation was not just to take you to heaven, not just to take you to heaven. The purpose of salvation was that God was bringing about a redeemed people, a redeemed people who reflect, who he wanted to reflect his glory and his character to the entire world. And in our culture today, now think with me, y'all have seen it rain, heard it rain before, so just, just give me your best attention, okay? Our culture today makes so much of man. We're a humanistic culture. We are an incul- a culture that encourages self-expression in every form imaginable. I read the other day the most often used word in the English language is, guess what? I. If you'll take all the books right now and scan them, the word that appears the most often is the word I. And you know what that's done? This focus upon self. Boy, it's hard to preach to people when everybody's listening to it rain. How many of you have ever seen rain before? Okay, it ain't no big deal. It's wet. It'll probably be over by the time we get out. If you left your car windows down, it's already too late. It's soaked. So, <laughs> so, 
Come on, we're talking about the most important thing in the whole universe today, aren't we? We're talking about the glory of God. And our culture has made us so man-centered and encouraged self-expression and personal freedom to the point that today, you know what, it's left us a bunch of empty people. We're not a happy people in America today. You would think with all that we have that we'd be the happiest people in history. We're not happy people on, by and large. And we're empty. We don't understand because we don't understand our purpose. And in the Bible, the focus is not on man. The focus is on God and His glory. Read the book of Revelation with me. Just flip right on over there, please, to the book of Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to only read you one passage, or I want you to read it with me. But we could read in other chapters because it's repeated at least three times here. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 10, and the four and 20 elders who represent the saved people, they fall down before him that sat on the throne. That's God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And they worship him that liveth forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. What a, what a dynamic, dramatic scene. And what do they say? What is the song, the theme of heaven? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And in chapter 5, you see the same scene. And in chapter 7, you see it repeated for the third time. The glory of God is the theme of all eternity when we read our Bible. Let's study that word glory here for just a few moments together. What is glory? Because it's a word that appears 402 times, 402 times in our King James Version of the Bible. In the Webster's Dictionary, it defines glory like this. Glory is the honor, dignity, recognition, admiration, praise someone or something has gained by great achievement. Now, again, I'll read it because I want you to hold on to it. Glory, the word glory means the honor, dignity, recognition, admiration, praise that someone or something has gained by great achievement. I'm thinking of uh, old glory over here, the flag. We call it old glory. Isn't that interesting? And that flag represents, symbolizes our nation. It's the symbol of the United States of America. And when I look at that flag, I think of our glorious history. I think of the battle for independence in 1776. I think of the founding fathers. I think of the Constitution that is unlike any document that humanity ever penned in all of history. I think of the victories that we've had. I think of World War II and Guadalcanal. And I think of World War II and, and Midway Island. I think of anything you want to pull from our history. I think of the greatness, our economy, our industrial production, I think of our scientific advancements. I think of that flag when Neil Armstrong stuck it in the surface of the moon. That flag stands for so much. It represents the honor 
the respect, the achievement, the praise, the glory that has been acquired by this wonderful country that God privileged me to be a citizen of. Now, another definition for glory is that glory is the thing that distinguishes something from everything else and makes it unique. Glory is the distinguishing characteristic that someone or something has that makes it it or him or her unique. And so we talk, we say the glory of the zebra is its stripes. The glory of the cheetah is its speed. The glory of an elephant is its size because that's the distinguishing quality and characteristic we think of when we think of those animals. Proverbs 20 and 29 says, the glory of young men is their strength. And so the young man glories in his strength. He works out, he builds up his body, and he glories in his strength. And so throughout the Bible, 402 times this word is used in many different ways. I was doing research on the computer, and I Googled up the word glory. And one of the articles that came up was an article from the Baltimore newspaper. And the headline read, The Glory Days of the Baltimore Orioles. And it referred to a period of time back in the 80s when the Orioles were a a, a very well-known and very successful team and had a winning record. And it referred to that as their glory days. We use it in another way. Psalm 73, 24 uses the word glory as a synonym for heaven itself. And so I go to a funeral and I hear the pastor say, she went to glory. And what we mean by that is heaven. She went to heaven, which is the ultimate uh, state of a human being, of a Christian. And so when we talk about a person going to glory, we're talking about their ultimate and best state of glorification, if you will. Now, let's take those definitions and let's apply them to God. What is the glory of God? I've been talking about glory in a general sense. What is the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is the honor, the dignity, the admiration, the greatness, the recognition, the praise that belongs to God because of who He is and what He has done throughout history. It's the distinguishing characteristics about God that set Him apart. It's the focus we put upon Him because He is unlike anyone else. There's no one to whom we can even compare God. Or to be a little more theological, it's the sum total of all of His intrinsic attributes, meaning his attributes are his characteristics. And you add all of those together, heap them up, if you will, in a great pile of character. And the sum total of those is the very character, the essence of God, things that characterize God and make him unlike and superior to anyone and everyone else. In the Bible, we find out that God's glory is often associated with brilliant blinding light, light that is so powerful and overwhelming that we could not even live as a physical being in that light. And in Hebrews 1.3, we read of the brightness of His glory, the brightness of His glory. And remember in the Bible, sometimes people were in the presence of God, 
and they fell down. They were overwhelmed. They were totally rendered weak and helpless in the presence of God, and he seems to be a blinding light. John says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And in 1 Timothy 6 and 16, it describes God as the one who dwells in the light which no man can approach unto. We can't even approach God in the sense of his glory without a mediator. And in Revelation 21 and 23, it refers to, the, to heaven. And notice how it's described. Heaven has no need of the sun nor the moon, for the glory of God lightens heaven. And the Lamb, Jesus, is the light thereof. You understand why I said we're sort of treading in some deep water here today, aren't we? We're into an area of mystery, an area that we really, we do our best intellectually to grasp it. And I've done my best to simplify it and say it in plain, plain English. And yet, I don't feel like I can even begin to describe God's glory. It is so great, it's beyond my capacity to even conceive, much less describe Wasn't that a great song now in the light of what I've said that the choir sung? The glory of God is filling this place. And the prophets all look forward, and many of them use this phrase. Someday they say, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. The earth will be filled with the glory of God. Boy, it's not filled with the glory of God this morning. It's filled with heartbreak and darkness and evil, and war, and hatred, and bickering, everything but the glory of God. But God has a plan. I promise you God has a plan. And his plan is going to culminate in the glory of God filling the earth like the waters cover the sea today. Well, why do we put such an emphasis? Why does the Scripture put such an emphasis on the glory of God. Two reasons. One, the glory, we glorify God because of who He is. We glorify God because of who He is this morning. And who is He? Let me try to describe Him in my halting and limited way. Why is God worthy of all honor and glory? Well, it's because of His attributes, His characteristics, His nature, if you will, who He is. First of all, the Bible tells me that God is a spirit. Jesus said that. John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God doesn't have a physical, corporal body like you and I. He's not a material being. He is a spirit being, and yet he is a personal being. He is not the force. He is not... Mother Nature, some impersonal type of power like the like gravity or electricity. He's personal, meaning he is a person, meaning just like you and I, I have an intellect. I can think that makes me a person. I have a personality, emotions, feelings makes me a person. It's part of being a person. I have a will. 
I can make rational choices. I can reason. I can think. I can choose. And so we usually define what is a person. We say the mind, the emotions, and the will, the, the intellect, our feelings, our volition. That makes a person a person, not the body. The person lives within the body, as the Scripture teaches. God is a spirit. God is a person. He's personal. He's not a force. God is infinite. When I say infinite, I mean there are no limits to his being or his power. The earth can't contain him, the psalmist said. When I say he's not limited anyway, I mean that he has all knowledge. There's not anything that God doesn't know today. Not one thing. He, Jesus even taught that he knows how many hair is on our head. He sees the fall of a sparrow. We're sitting in staff meeting the other morning, talking, and suddenly, wham, this noise. And we all looked to the window, and a bird flew into the window, just full flight. Broke his neck. He fell over into the flower bed, quivering and dead. And I thought of that verse. God just saw that happen. He saw that bird, that crazy bird, trying to fly into that window and lose his life. But God knew that was going to happen. If he knows that a hair can fall from my head, several which do regularly, and he keeps the count on that, then he knows everything. There's not a molecule loose in this world that God doesn't already know about it. And so he planned the world. He was as the creator. And he was the one who designed everything that's designed. Think of that. He has all knowledge. There's not anything that God doesn't know. But then he has all power. He not only knows it, he can get it done. <laughs> as evidenced by the creation. And so he can do anything he wants to do. He's infinite. He doesn't know anything more now than he knew on creation morning because he knew it all then. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Nothing. God never said, oh, yeah, that's right. No. He knows everything. And he has all power. There's nothing he cannot do. He's infinite. He is also eternal, meaning he is not bound by time. He's not getting older like yours truly. He's always the same. He's ageless, dateless, timeless. He's eternal. And then I'll use a big word because I don't know a better word. We say that God is transcendent. Transcendent, that's not a word we use much in South Carolina, but we'll use it this morning. What's transcendent means mean? It means he's over everything. It means he's superior to everything. That he is so separated from man in that sense, so superior. Your ways are not my ways. 
Your thoughts are not my thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, God said, so are my ways higher than your ways. He doesn't reason and think like you and me because he is transcendent. Say that word with me, transcendent, superior, superior in every way. Oh, we're very egalitarian in the United States. We're all equal. We're so equal now that nobody can even lead anything. But you know what? With God, there's no egalitarianism, no equality. He is absolutely superior as the heavens are above the earth in every single facet of his being and his existence. Boy, I haven't even scratched the surface. I could preach a message on he's holy and his love, pure, infinite love. He's just. We don't know much about justice in our world now. Justice seems to have broken down, but God is always just. God is truth. God is righteous. God is merciful and gracious and patient and good and faithful and compassionate. And do you want me to go on? You get the picture. And listen to me. Every one of those words that I've said, he's that in infinite degree. He's unlimited in his love. He's unlimited in his power. He's unlimited in his justice. He's unlike anyone and anything. And all of that greatness combined is what we refer to as the glory of God, the sum total of his attributes. All those wonderful qualities that God has in unlimited amount, an infinite amount, that separate him from all of his creatures, the characteristics that make him God and all of them together are his glory. In fact, he is the source of all that is good. He is the source of all that is good. If it's good, it came from God. James said, every good gift and every perfect gift gift cometh down from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He's always the same, no turning, no shadow of turning in him. And if it's good, it came from God. And so today we have life, and life is good, and life comes from God. And today we have health, and let's give God the glory for our health. And today I woke up to another day of life, and I have the wonderful privilege to stand here before hundreds and hundreds of people and look into four or five television cameras and preach the gospel all over the northeastern South Carolina and southeastern North Carolina. And you know what? Praise God. That's a gift of God. And I look at our church that's existed for 44 years and how God has blessed us and used it and raised it up. And all these young people that are out serving him and a wonderful week of youth camp, all of that came from God, ladies and gentlemen. All of that came from God. I remember one time Billy Graham said something that so impressed me because he got all of this attention. He was the number one preacher in America and writing books and articles, and, and yet he always seemed to be able to maintain his humility. And he said one time, 
It makes me uneasy when people brag about me and say good things about me because in the book of Isaiah, and he quoted the reference, God said, I will share my glory with no other. I will share my glory with no other. What he was saying is, anything that I can do, good in life, it's because of God's blessing and his glory, his goodness. It all comes from him. So if you wake up in the morning and go to work, it's because God has given you the breath to breathe and the health to do it. And if you are blessed in any way, it came from God. All good comes from him. He's the source of all good. And so we glorify God because of who he is. And then one more. We glorify God because of what he's done. Because of what he's done. You see, he deserves glory as our creator. There's a wonderful verse there in Psalm 100 and verse 3. It says, it is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We memorized that passage one time a few years ago. Do you remember that? Psalm 100, it is he that made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I can't take one shred of credit for anything that I am or have because it's from God. Turn with me in the book of Isaiah. Let's talk about him creating. Chapter 40 of Isaiah. Do you know that this is the, God's creation? We read the Bible and we think, well, that's a Genesis. Well, it is in Genesis, the first seven or eight chapters. But let me tell you something. The thread of creation runs throughout the Bible and is mentioned scores, if not hundreds of times, I can take you to virtually any book in the Bible and show you passages that talk about God being the creator. And so when we hear all this talk today about evolution, we're talking about a direct frontal attack upon the integrity of God's word and, what God, and who God is. The whole point of evolution is to steal the glory of God and give it to man. And God's word over and over talks about his creation. And we glorify him because of what he's done. And what has he done? He is our creator. Psalm number four, or pardon me, Isaiah chapter 40. And go down and read with me beginning in verse 21. Have you not known, question, have you not heard? Had it not been, hath it not been told unto you from the beginning? Have you not understood this from the foundations of the earth? It's so basic. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. By the way, stop. Circle of the earth, circle of the earth, circle of the earth. Picture the earth from space. Now, people will say the Bible teaches that the earth is flat. No, it doesn't. You're talking to, excuse me, an ignoramus. The Bible teaches that the earth is circular, just like the astronauts proved to us. This was written 700 years plus before the Lord Jesus Christ ever came to the earth. And the prophet said the earth is a circle. Now, I'm off topic, but I just wanted, you know, I've got to make a little dig every now and then just to prove that I can still preach. 
It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof, uh uh-oh, hold on to your self-image. We're all like grasshoppers. (laughs) And he stretches out the heavens as a curtain, and he spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. God the Creator. Go with me, if you will, and look on down in the same chapter, verse 25. Yea, they shall not... uh, to whom then will you liken me? Or who, so who will you liken me to? God says, I'm incomparable. I'm transcendent. I'm superior. You can't compare me to anyone. Or with whom shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. Behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He even has given them their names by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power and not one faileth. You see, God created everything. The Bible teaches that unmistakably. We Christians believe that. And we believe because he made it all, then we honor and glorify him for it all. And the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. So we look up to heaven and we can see the glory at night when we observe the stars. And we look at the mountains. I remember going out to Colorado a few years ago and standing there at the foot of one of those mountains in the shadows and looking up at those uh, sunlit white caps of ice and snow and the pine trees and fir trees and the blue sky up there and I had this overwhelming sense of the greatness and the majesty of God. It was overwhelming. It was a a spiritual experience, if you will. You can go over to Myrtle Beach. If you look east, you will see the glory of God. If you look west, (laughs) he's not responsible for all that. But you look at the ocean and its greatness, and its majesty. And you sense the awesome greatness and power and glory of the Creator. When I think about God creating, what I'm reminded of is He's independent of His creation. He's totally independent of it. He is self-existent. He doesn't need the universe. He was complete before He ever, before Genesis 1-1. God doesn't need the universe to make him happy or fulfilled. In fact, he doesn't need anything. He made the creation for us and for his glory, but he didn't need the creation. He had existed forever from eternity past without a universe. He's exclusively God. Look at verse 25 there of Isaiah 40. He is exclusively God. There's no other gods. Verse number 25, to whom then will you liken me? The postmodern philosophy of our day says there are many roads to heaven. Just pick out your favorite one. There are many gods to worship. But God says, oh, no, I am exclusively God. Now, the world just goes crazy when we talk like that. They think we're bigots, we're haters because we put God up there in that superior, exalted position. And yet, 
We do that because the Word, the Bible, clearly teaches that. He deserves our, he deserves glory because of what he's done. Now, he is independent of the creation. We're totally dependent on it. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 25, it teaches us how dependent we are, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Everything we have came from him. I've already made that point. Look in verse 28, the same chapter. In him we live and move. And we have our being, we have our existence, we, our life is sustained in him. And he can withdraw his hand from me and my life will end. The breath will be out of my lungs, my nostrils, I'll be gone. In him I live and move. And that's the basis for humility. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. There should be no such thing. Because everything about me is determined is dependent upon him and upon the universe that he created for me. Think about that. We glorify him because of what he's done. Secondly, we glorify him because he is our redeemer. And this is the glory of the gospel. Man rebelled. Man rebelled against his creator early in his existence. And he brought condemnation and judgment for his rebellion and his sins upon himself. Man created his own problem by his disobedience and rebellion against God. God could have turned his back. He could have just zapped Adam and Eve that day, but he didn't because, as I preached last week, he's a God of compassion. And instead, he showed grace to them. He gave them what they did not deserve. He, showed, he gave mercy to them. He did not give them what they deserved mercy, and grace. And he could have just completely forgotten the whole plan, but God had the plan of redemption in mind that the Bible says he had conceived before the foundation of the world. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin, and so he had a plan for sin. Will you turn with me to Isaiah 53 in your Bible? You're already nearby there in chapter 40. Read with me some of the most beautiful words in all of sacred Scripture, Isaiah 53 and 4. Surely he, that's Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or punishment of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Redemption. His son came to the earth to pay for our sins, to be my substitute. The good news. Christ died for our sins. In Colossians 1 and 14, it says that we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. We're not forgiven because we beg and cry and repent and tell God we're sorry. We are forgiven on the basis of the fact 
that Christ shed his blood and God could now righteously and justly give us his gift of salvation. Revelation 5 and 9, again at the throne of God in heaven, the elders sing, Thou hast redeemed us by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and tribe and nation. God is our redeemer and we give him glory for it. And there's one more. Please listen to me carefully. God deserves glory because he is our future judge. Our future judge. Revelation 14 and 7 says, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. Listen to that again. Revelation 14 and 7. The angel says, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of judgment is come. We're to even glorify him for his judgments. We honor our earthly judges. Go to court with me in your mind's eye for a moment. The door opens in the back. The black-robed judge walks up on the stand there. The bailiff says, all rise. The bailiff hears Riley Prop sitting right over to my right in South Carolina in our court. And many times I've heard him say, all rise. And everyone in the courtroom gets up in honor to show respect, not for the man who wears the black robe, but for the law that that bench and that gavel and that robe represent. And we pay honor. We walk up to the bar, the bench, And we approach and we say, your honor. We even call him that. We write him a letter and we say, to the honorable so-and-so as a form of address. We do that with a man. A man is no different than you and I, just simply has acquired that position for whatever reasons. But someday, you and I will stand before the bench of the ultimate Supreme Court the most honorable God of eternity will be there on the book, on the bench, instead of a law book, will be a copy of the Bible. And he will judge us according to those things that he put in his word. Someday, every one of us will be there. I'm glad I didn't have one of the modern moms that doesn't want her little babies to hear anything negative about God. My mother and dad taught me to fear God. And today I love God, but I equally fear God. And when the fear of God goes out of a culture, you get what we're seeing today. When you read your newspaper and watch your newscast this evening, you're looking at a world that loves to talk about God's love but has no appreciation for the fact that he also is the God to be feared. The Bible teaches that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we're not very wise when we don't give God the glory. Would you bow your head with me in prayer?